I have one great and overriding concern, and that is the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I recognize today that America is being destroyed. The work of the gospel is being shut down in America. The churches have become places of entertainment. The churches are shallow. The teaching is shallow. It's not the deep teaching of Scripture that calls a man to give up his life, to take up his cross and follow Jesus. Instead, it's a populist message about how you can prosper. little tickle of inspiration. And as the Christians are sleeping in America, the nation is being stolen right out from under our feet. We have a president who is doing everything in his power to destroy the effectiveness of the gospel of Jesus Christ in America. We are being invaded by radical Islam. The gospel of Jesus Christ is being suppressed, not just in Syria or Libya or Saudi Arabia. It's being repressed in America. Many are saying Sharia law should have some kind of authority in America. Some of the Supreme Court looks to other nations' laws as they make their ruling rather than to the Bill of Rights or the Constitution. The Constitution is being eviscerated. Every kind of evil is flowing into our country, and the pulpits are basically silent, numb, fatalistic, The cry of my heart is for the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ teaches the way of the cross. America was founded as a Judeo-Christian nation. We were never called to be concerned about ham sandwiches. We were never called to be concerned about making room in our churches, taking down the cross putting in Muslim prayer centers in our churches. We are being invaded by illegal immigrants. And some say, oh, welcome them in. Well, we could welcome them in if we were truly a Christian nation, but we're no longer a Christian nation. We have been eviscerated. We are being erased as a Western culture that is based on the Judeo-Christian ethic, the Lord God of heaven. Allah is not the Lord God of heaven. He is a Luciferian God. He is straight out of the Hittite history and Babylon and the Babylonian history. We are seeing things today happen in America that are terrifying while most of the Christian church continues to slumber, to not be concerned, as America is erased. In Oklahoma, 
10.30 at night, they come in with a wrecking crew to remove the monument of the Ten Commandments in the name of religious liberty. But there's no religious liberty for the pizzeria or the baker. We've come to a horrible time in America where darkness is flooding this nation. And from the Congress to the White House to the Supreme Court, America is being destroyed as rapidly as possible with every wicked inroad. Now, the reason this so concerns me is twofold. One, I love America. I love the Judean, Judeo-Christian culture that has made America one of the greatest nations or the greatest nation ever to exist in the history of the world. No nation has so enjoyed freedom, freedom to worship, freedom to assemble, the right to bear arms. These were not privileges granted by the government. These were God-given rights. And now all of that is being challenged. The right to assemble. The right not to face seat, search and seizure. I mean, you could drive down the, the highway. Most recently I spoke with my son-in-law who is a member of the state police in Maryland. And he said, oh yes, if we find the potential of a problem, we have the right to take that man's belongings or his car. Seizures, theft, robbery, evil, not American. We face a time in this nation first of all, that breaks my heart because I love America and because I see people suffering. I see poverty increasing. I see that the wickedness of our government has made these trade agreements and is even now in the process of making another Pacific trade agreement that will strip out the remaining infrastructure, the ability to manufacture goods. It's been transferred to other nations. They had no right to that. It was stolen away by our government. And so men and women who in Detroit used to make a very good living building wonderful American cars are now unemployed, bankrupt. They call it progress. No, it's not progress. It's wickedness. It's shipping overseas to other countries what God has given to us as America. And the debt increase. My heart breaks as I look at the huge increase of debt. We used to be a nation that loaned money 
Now we're the greatest debtor nation in the history of the world. And believe me, these chickens are going to come home and roost. We are losing our nation. And it breaks my heart because I love America. But the greater issue for me is not about the wonderful land of America where we enjoyed in the past a wonderful life. Now, the second issue is that the work of the gospel is being hindered. The work of the gospel is being shut down. And that is my greatest concern. Across the Western world, restrictions are increasingly being placed on Christians who are not allowed to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ we're not allowed to speak against homosexuality in Canada or in England or in other parts of the Western world. We're not allowed to speak about sin. We're not allowed to address the issues of righteousness. And most Christian pastors in America don't want to be bothered with dealing with sin or the blood or righteousness. The cry of my heart is that these leaders, quote-unquote, who hinder the work of the gospel will be removed. There are some in government who will do all they can against the tide. And for these men and these women, I pray constantly for those who are endangering our nation and the gospel of Jesus Christ, I I plead with God to deal with them according to their wickedness. Oh yes, I ask that they be convicted of their sin and they be turned from the path of darkness, that they be converted to the true gospel of Jesus Christ, a gospel of love and compassion and mercy, but also a gospel of of sanctification, of righteousness. If you got up this morning and have just gone about your day as normal, you don't understand what's happening in this nation. There is no longer a normal in America. America's dying. Now, you may not feel that because you have a wonderful government job or you have a wonderful company to work for and you have an adequate income or you were in the military and now you have your wonderful retirement and you can go subcontract. You can become a contractor and you can double dip. But in many parts of America... The middle class has been eviscerated. The jobs are gone. And we see darkness fast covering our nation. And what are you going to do about it? What is your stand going to be? 
I'm going to read for you Romans, the 13th chapter. I'll begin with verse 1. This is a, a passage of Scripture that has been completely misinterpreted and misunderstood by many Christians in our current day. Believe me, the Minutemen understood this passage of Scripture. They were elders in the church, and their pastor led them against the British. Believe me, Moses understood these basic concepts when he went against Pharaoh and led the children of Israel out of captivity. Everyone, it says, must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Now, it seems very straightforward. Obey whatever the government tells you to do. They are the governing authorities of God, so listen to them and obey them. And yes, that is what it says. And if we stop there, there is absolutely no justifiable reason for resisting the power of the government as it shuts down the Christian church. There's no reason to stand up to the, to the laws that are forcing Christians to perform same-sex marriages. There's no reason to stand up against the government if it insists that you must have abortion on your medical plan for your employees. There's no reason to reject that because obviously everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities for there's no authority except that which God has established. And so if we just read through verse 2, we would say, do not in any way resist the authority of the government, but submit to it. But I want to tell you that historically, that is not what Christians have done, and it is not what Christians have understood. I have a friend who is a, a Muslim, FBI agent. And I was facing a, an interview with the FBI regarding this man, a man I dearly love, he and his family as well. And I said to him, just so I could understand, are you first a Muslim or are you first an American? Without missing a beat, he said, Pastor, I am first an American. America is my home. I am secondly a Muslim. I said to him, then we stand on two very different sides because I am first a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. I am secondly 
an American, but I am but an alien as a stranger here. My loyalty is to the Lord God of heaven, and then all I can do to help my nation I will do, but only under the authority of that granted to me by Jesus Christ. Listen to verse 3. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. Well, what happens if the ruler holds terror for those who do what is right? And it pleases those and honors those who do wrong. It says, do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. What if he does not commend you, but condemns you? What if the government comes and does not honor your righteousness, but instead demands that you function illegally, that you go against the Constitution of the United States, that you go against even the law of the land? Our federal government right now, every day, is breaking the laws of America. Barack Obama, our president, has committed treason time after time, should be arrested, and should be tried for treason. He has refused to obey the law of the land. So do we honor our president? and go along with him in his wickedness? Or do we honor the righteous laws of America? And then what do we do if the Congress in their wickedness and the Supreme Court in its wickedness rule that those laws are unconstitutional and replace them with their new laws honoring the unrighteous and commending the unrighteous? That is where we stand as a nation today. Verse 4, He is God's servant to do you good. Well, what if he is not God's servant? What if he is the devil's servant and he is here to block the work of the gospel? He is here to slow down the work of the gospel. He is here to overturn the work of the gospel. He is here to remove prayer from the schools. He is here to remove the scripture from the school. It is stunning to me that today, in Putin's Russia, they are encouraged to read the Bible to the students. They encourage their students to pray in school. Putin's Russia has become more Christian than Obama's America. What do we do with that turn of events? I grew up during the communist era when everyone was very concerned about the ungodliness of Russia, the communist government, the atheistic government. And now the Christian church, the honest Christian church, prospers in, in Russia, but is oppressed in America. 
How do we deal with that? It says, he is God's servant and agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. But if he does not punish the wrongdoer, look at the banks. Look at the Fed. Creating this debt bubble. Destroying the fiat currency. What do we do with President Nixon taking us off the gold standard and then making a lie out of our currency? Utter wickedness. Many have said John F. Kennedy was probably the last real president of America. Now, many would say Ronald Reagan was a very fine president, and I agree he was in many respects, but I also recognize he had a very demonic power operating in his family, even in his administration. And I believe we've gone downhill steadily since then. Until today, we have a president who is utterly ungodly. And we have a nation that is being destroyed from the inside out. And the church remains silent. It says, this is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants. But what if they are not God's servants? What if they rob and steal? and enrich themselves? What if they're bought and sold by corporations? Verse 7, Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Well, I don't owe respect to crooked government officials. I do not owe honor to crooked government officials or to crooked courts or to a crooked Supreme Court or to a crooked Congress. I don't owe them honor, according to the Scriptures. Now, taxes? Yes, we still enjoy the benefits that we derive from our taxes, although many of the tax dollars are being spent in ways that are utterly destructive to the work of the gospel. He says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another, for he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. We face a very, very difficult time in America. And I want to tell you, in the face of this very, very difficult time, we must make a decision. Will we put our head in the sand and pretend that everything is just fine as it collapses around us? Will we surrender to it? Will we give up? Will we turn and become fatalistic? and say, well, God knows all about it, and whatever we need to do, he's going to do. And whatever happens, it's just going to happen. 
I have to accept things as they are, and events are inevitable, and submission is my role, and I'm powerless to make a difference. I can't affect the future. We're not free to choose our own actions. I just have to go along and get along. Nothing's really worth fighting for. Or we can decide to fight for righteousness. We can decide to fight in the prayer closet and by living out our lives in opposition to the cultural flow that is shaping everything around us. Listen, therefore I urge you, brothers, Romans 12, 1, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, not to the government, but to Jesus Christ, holy and pleasing to God. In other words, get rid of the sin in your life. That's where the first battle must be held. There must be a total, complete dying out of your flesh. You must give up the illusion that you can continue to be a comfortable American and go to the ball game and listen to the football game and look at the Kardashians and, and go here and go there and have your normal life. That is over in America if America is to be saved. He says, this is your spiritual act of worship, not going to church and listening to some pretty little song sung. That's not your act of spiritual worship. Your act of spiritual worship is to put yourself on that cross with Christ, to die out. He says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world or do not anymore shape your life your daily personal life. Do not shape that life to look like the world. Don't do it. Stop. It is a stern warning from the Apostle Paul. Do not shape your life to look like the wicked culture around you. Instead, it says, be transformed. That is, be metamorphosed. Become a new creature with your mind completely renovated. There must come a complete renovation of our minds and our lives so that we are given utterly to Jesus Christ and there is not a bone in our body that is fatalistic. Instead, we see the vision of a, of a land called heaven, the celestial city, the place that Bunyan was taking hopeful to and Christian to and faithful to. We've got to be faithful and hopeful. We've got to be a Christian. We've got to stand up and say, I'm done with this wicked world. I cut it off in the name of Jesus. I am going to pursue godliness. No longer standing on the line halfway in and halfway out. You must now either decide, I am going to hang with Jesus Christ, or I'm going to hang with the world. You can't do both anymore. This is not the first time America has been in a grave crisis. There was a man born in 1822. 
His name was Sam. He was actually <laughs> called Ulysses Simpson Grant. He was our 18th president. His picture is currently in our $50 bill. Take it out sometime. Look at a $50 bill and look at this man's face. Now, we don't know very much about Sam Grant in terms of his faith. We do know he was a Methodist. We know he was not a very good Methodist. We know that his wife, however, was an absolutely committed and devoted woman to Jesus Christ. So what I'm going to share with you, I believe, came out of the prayer closet of his Methodist wife and the Methodist brothers and sisters who were honest Christians. They were old-time John Wesley Methodists, not the modern version of the, of the wicked Methodists of our day. Now, USS Grant was born in Ohio. He was the son of a tanner and a farmer. And this father did not have a good reputation. He grew up in a in a hard existence poor he liked horses and farm animals a lot more than he liked people he was able to go to the US military academy at west point there he earned the reputation of being able to break and tame any horse he could talk to the horse he was a master horseman, and when he went to fight in the Mexican War, he became a war hero for gallantry on horseback. He was able to swing around under a horse at full gallop in the midst of the battle. He was a courageous man, and he was an exceptional athlete. Now, at West Point, he only earned a lackluster grade level. He was continually getting demerits for breaking the rules. He was good in mathematics. He was very good in geology. And without surprise, he was excellent in horsemanship. <clears throat> in 1843... <coughs> Pardon me. In 1843, he graduated 21st out of 39 in his class. He planned to resign from the military as soon as he is able to complete his mandatory four years of duty to cover the cost of his education. During the Mexican-American War, this young man, 24 years old, served as quartermaster. He very efficiently oversaw the movements of supplies. He served under General Zachary Taylor and later under General Winfield Scott, two exceptional leaders, and he was able to become much more disciplined 
becoming a leader. He was given the opportunity to lead a company into combat, and he was credited for great bravery under fire. He was fierce in battle. Now, after the Mexican War was over, Grant's life took a turn for the worst. He fell into what we would now call clinical depression. He exhibited a melancholy that was frequently described by nearly everyone who wrote about him, and he was also described as a very heavy drinker. He missed his wife and his four young children terribly while serving in posts of responsibility with the military out west in the peacetime army. And because of that sadness and separation, he became even more depressed and more of an alcoholic. Finally, on July 31, 1854, Grant resigned from the army under heavy pressure of threatened disciplinary action because of his drinking and his depression. In 1854, Ulysses S. Grant moved his family back to Missouri, but the return to civilian life led him to a, a new low point. He tried to farm on land that his father-in-law had given to him, but he was not a farmer. He loved animals, but he was not a farmer. He proved unsuccessful after a few years and completely failed financially. Grant then tried to go into real estate, and that went nowhere, and he lost everything. He was then trying to use his mathematics background to become an engineer and a clerk in St. Louis. And because of his reputation, he was not able to secure that job. This former dashing, brave soldier and athlete was now reduced to stacking and selling firewood on the streets of St. Louis to feed his four children. He was as low as a man could go. Finally, in 1860, at the age of 38, he humbled himself and he went to work in his dad's tanning business as a store clerk. His younger brother was his boss. Utterly shamed, utterly broken, living a life of desperation, trying to provide enough income to feed his family his four children, and his precious wife. He was utterly broken. He was so broke in 1857 that he had to take out a loan from a local bank. He did that by pawning his watch in order to buy his wife and his children Christmas presents. Now this man, who was utterly washed up, dead-end, absolute poverty, shamed by his family, utterly discouraged and depressed, 
you would say that man was washed up. In many ways, Ulysses S. Grant represents America today. We are washed up and depressed as a nation. But God chose this man to help save the United States of America. Oh, there were better candidates. But something, something in this man refused to give up. He refused to give in to fatalism. He refused the poverty. He refused the humility. He, re- he utterly rejected the failure. I don't know how this happened. All I can say is that his wife was a godly woman who prayed. And I credit that praying wife for what happened in the next 10 years of Grant's life. Within five years, Ulysses S. Grant had gone back to the army because a great war was starting, the U.S. Civil War. He went back to the army, and within five years, he was the commanding general of the United States Army. Within another five years, he was the president of the United States of America. In ten years, his life was totally, utterly, completely turned around by the hand of God. And God used this man. This broke, washed up, nobody, barely able to put food on the table, working for his dad, being bossed around by his little brother, to being the victim victorious general who won the U.S. Civil War, a war that claimed over 600,000 lives. And that's a very conservative estimate. Some scholars put it closer to a million lives. You see, Abraham Lincoln kept hearing about this man out west different people mentioning him. He was a, he said, a warrior. He was fearless. And he knew how to win victories. And so Abraham Lincoln promoted him and promoted him and finally made him the head of the entire United States of America military. Lincoln was asked, why do you keep promoting Sam Grant? Lincoln replied, he fights. He fights. Lincoln needed generals who would fight. He worked his way up from a regimental commander in 1861, commanding brigades and divisions by 1862. By 1863, he was the commanding general of the entire army in the Western Theater. By 1864, he was commanding general of the entire U.S. Army. And he moved to the Eastern Theater to make war on Lee's army 
in northern Virginia, an army that had defeated no less than four commanding Union generals that Lincoln said would not fight. I'm telling you this story not to honor Grant, but to say the church must become a Grant. We have become the low level. We've become the alcoholic. We've become the failure. And we must stand up and begin to fight. And the way we fight is not with arms of warfare like Grant did. We fight in the prayer closet. We utterly cast out fatalism and say, look, we've got to get to God. I'm going to share later stories this week of great courage of intercessors who knew how to pick up the battle and fight. We must have intercessors in America. That's what the National Prayer Chapel is for. It's not a tame place. It's a boot camp for men and women who want to learn how to pray. Men and women who are willing to lay their lives down for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Men and women who are not willing to just be patsies anymore for the devil. The devil is destroying America because America has been the foundation of taking the gospel to the world. And Satan has said, I will have you. And I'm saying, no, Satan, you will not have America. We will pray. And the power of the Holy Spirit will destroy this devil spirit that has inhabited the halls of our government and the centers of entertainment and the wickedness of our culture. There must be a change. We must regain the moral fiber of our nation, or we will be utterly cast aside by God. I'm unwilling for that to happen. I love America too much, and I love the gospel too much. What if this man had quit? What if he'd just given up? What if he'd given in to fatalism? You would never have heard of him. But he had the guts to fight for what he thought was right. He had the guts to be a leader. He came from nothing and made nothing of his life to speak of. Yet God used this man to win the bloodiest war in U.S. history and one of the deadliest wars in all of recorded history. What if he had said, I'm a drunk. I'm a nobody. I can't make a difference. Roughly 1,264,000 American soldiers have died in this nation's wars. 618,000 in the Civil War, conservatively speaking. 644,000 in all the other conflicts we've been engaged in. It was only as recently as the Vietnam War that the amount of American deaths in foreign wars eclipsed the number who died in the Civil War. You'll understand, many southern cities were burned to the ground. Many southern cities, every military-age young man was killed in the Civil War. This was an incredible war. And frankly, I love to study the Civil War because it informs me of the great sacrifices made on both the side of the South and of the North. And frankly, my loyalties lie more with the South than with the North. 
But God wanted the North to win because he wanted to mend this nation and make it one powerful nation. He wanted to remove the corruption. He wanted to remove slavery. But believe me, slavery was also in the North. It's interesting to me that in the South, in the Civil War, there was integration in the military, while there was segregation in the North. Many misunderstandings about this war have taken the hearts of men and women. But I want to tell you today, There's another war we face. And it is another revolution. The first revolution was against England, Britain. The second revolution was the Civil War. We now face a third civil war, a third revolution. I pray that revolution never devolves down into bloodshed and military fighting on our nation's soil. But it is a revolution that must be fought, and it's a revolution for moral values. It is a revolution against wickedness. It is a revolution that says, I will not give up. I will utterly give myself over to the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is nothing more important today for America than men and women who will pray and who will repent of their sin, who will get right with Jesus, who will give up the foolish notion that they must have a comfortable life, but instead will turn wholeheartedly and will sacrifice everything for the gospel of Jesus Christ. There must be, in our day, a revival of godliness. There must be, in our day, a turning aside from the invasion of Islam. The Islamic people who have come to America need to hear the honest, true gospel of Jesus Christ, and many of them will gladly embrace a Christian faith that is real, that is honest, that is compassionate. A Christian faith that lifts men and women out of the dust and the dirt of sin and washes them in the blood of Jesus. Many pagans who have come to America from all over the world invading this nation from South and Central America to Syria and Libya and other nations. As these people come in, they have to be introduced to Jesus Christ. There must be a return to godliness. The left-leaning progressives, everything they touch turns into corruption and filth. Everything they touch becomes more wicked, more dark, more unbearable. So there are two prongs to this revolution that must take place in America. One, 
Every man and woman must take up the sword of the Spirit. Every man and woman must repent of their sin and give up their life of wickedness. The moral fiber must be restored in this nation. The second prong of this battle must be in the prayer closet. It must be a people who will cry aloud to God, a people who will search after Jesus, a people who recognize that they cannot make themselves righteous, that it's the power of the blood of Jesus that makes a man righteous. And he doesn't just declare them righteous. He doesn't impute righteousness to them. He actually changes and transforms a man or woman into a new creature. He removes the wickedness from the heart of a man. We must have a dramatic and powerful example of righteousness for all of the world to see. If we do not see this, America will be destroyed. America is in almost every respect a nation of honor, a nation of of goodness, a nation of compassion. And all of these things are being stolen away from us. Men and women have become like animals, killing one another, given to insanity, killing each other in the physical realm, but also in the spirit realm. I see these these churches like the Methodist Church, and I my background is in theology is Methodist. I'm a Methodist theologically. Old time John Wesley Methodist, not the modern Methodist of compromise. I see a grand church that took the blood of many people to build. And I I see it being infiltrated by those weak-willed men and women controlled by demon spirits who want to bring in every kind of uncleanness into the church. Breaks my heart. I pray for the Methodist church. The Episcopal church, a long and storied history of righteousness, has now utterly given itself over to liberalism, to wickedness, to darkness, and they are hemorrhaging people by the hundreds of thousands. I have great respect for my Anglican brothers and sisters who left that fellowship to seek a place where they could hold faithfully to the teaching of Jesus Christ. I see in parts of Presbyterianism utter ungodliness. Parts of the Baptist utterly ungodly. These old standard bearers are being destroyed from the inside as they compromise with darkness. These huge megachurches where men and women come, most of them are utterly ungodly. destroying the life of men and women with their wickedness, with their compromise. 
Today you must decide. Are you going to be a part of the problem? Or are you going to be part of the solution? Are you willing to get in the prayer closet and begin to cry out to God and get right with Him? Are you willing to repent? Are you willing to give up your Laodicean, lackadaisical attitude of entertainment and, and searching after the things of this world? Are you willing to separate yourself out and get right with Jesus? Lord, I just pray for my brothers and sisters today. I ask, Lord, that you would convict and move and raise up a remnant in this nation who will fight for righteousness. Thank you, Lord. I pray in your holy name. Amen. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you, brother, sister. Let's be for Jesus. I'm Ray Greenlee. I pastor the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Thank you for listening today. I'll talk to you soon. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory.